We are continuing our series this morning on redeeming sex and sexuality. It was 10 years ago that The Atlantic published an insightful perspective on singleness, written by a single woman that was about single women in particular. Uh, she described herself as 39 years old and with too many ex-boyfriends to count. She pointed to the research that has only probably magnified over the course of the 10 years since this was written, that at that time, 40% of millennials and their predecessors, Gen Xers, believe marriage is obsolete. And so they are increasingly putting off marriage or often not marrying at all. There's much in the article that's fascinating in terms of just getting cultural perspectives. But one point in particular that stood out to me, she was describing how 11 years prior to when she wrote this, when she was 28, she broke up with a man whom she called, I'm quoting here now, an exceptional person, intelligent, good-looking, loyal, and kind. And she bemoaned that and was sort of looking back and, and in some sense felt that it was inexplicable as to why she did that, except for this. She said she began, this is her quote now, wanting two incompatible states of being, autonomy and intimacy. She wanted both at the same time, autonomy and intimacy. And she said it initially struck her as selfish and juvenile to think that way, to want those two, but needless to say, as she's, of course, writing the article for a secular audience over 10 years, she found a way to justify all that and explain why that was okay. But the world's view on singleness is a far cry from the biblical view. Uh, the world will try to sell the notion that yes, you can have it all, you can have autonomy, you can have no ties, no covenant, no commitment, and you can have intimacy through sexual relations. The data seems to bear this out. We are at a point where the highest number of Americans between the ages of 25 and 50 to have never married is where we are currently. And that's commensurate with the rise in the number of couples living together and the numbers of those who move through a series of, of sexual partners. As we've been talking about over the last few weeks, the Bible is consistently, unmistakably clear that sexual intimacy was made by God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage between a husband and a wife who are together in a lifelong covenant, and everything outside of that is sin. So that raises some questions for us on the topic of singleness. What, what does the Bible say about being single? Where does it fit in terms of God saying that man needs companionship? What we've already seen in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. Is there contentment for those who are not married? Let me kind of walk us through and start back in Genesis and then look at some of the sayings of Jesus and then 1 Corinthians chapter 7 before we end. Um, but let me encourage many of you here as I'm looking out are married. And this is as much for you as for someone who is single. We, we need to think about these things and the truths that speak to singles are the truths of the word of God that speak to us as well. So let me encourage you to, to, to check in deeply as we study these things. But we know the mandate that God gave in Genesis 1:28 when he spoke to Adam and Eve and he said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it and that is central to God's creation story God establishes marriage between a man and a woman and this covenant and then sexual intimacy within the bounds of that marriage at least one of the purposes and we talked about several last week but at least one of the chief purposes is for procreation it is to carry this out to be fruitful and multiply the rabbis during the time of the Old Testament took Genesis 1.28 to be a very much a binding command in the sense that those who did not marry or who married and did not have children were in some sense disobeying that command. And 
And there's a sense in which we get some of that tone as we read the Old Testament in terms of barrenness being viewed as a curse and the idea of, of remaining apart from marriage as not being desired. Jephthah's daughter in Judges grieves the fact that she is never married. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a a thread, a storyline, if you will, concerning offspring. There's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There are the, the, the 12 tribes that all trace their lineage back to the sons of Jacob. There is the, the kingly line that takes us to David and ultimately leaves us knowing that there will be a descendant and offspring of David who will be the long-awaited Messiah. And so physical offspring are a vital part of God's covenant with Israel. He, he says to Abraham that your, your offspring will inherit the land. And God's covenant with Israel is with a nation of people and a nation that grew by procreation. With the coming of Jesus, the people of God's primary focus grow now by spiritual regeneration. They receive life by the new birth. Marriage and procreation are still important. They are still part of God's good plan. But in the New Testament, it is abundantly clear that celibacy and singleness are not to be viewed as some sort of disadvantage, as something that comes up short in some way. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 22, what I want to do for just the first few minutes is, is look at three of what are typically referred to as hard sayings of Jesus, things that Jesus says that we, we sort of have to back up a minute and go, oh, what, what is he saying here? This seems kind of hard. And Matthew 22 is one of those. He's in a confrontation with the Sadducees. They are Jewish leaders who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so when they confront Jesus publicly, they want to stump him in some way. They want to malign him in some way. And so they've come up with a question that ties in with the resurrection and that ties in with marriage that they think will, will prove Jesus to be foolish or at least put him in a quandary between the resurrection and what they're asking. And so they say to him, suppose a man marries a woman and the man dies and they are childless. And so the woman marries the man's brother and that man dies and they are childless. And so the woman marries another brother and, and so on as the story goes. And the, the question they ask him that they think, here's the one is, in the resurrection... Whose wife will she be? The basis for their question is, is not unusual. It's an Old Testament marriage practice that's defined for us in Deuteronomy 25. That's modeled for us in the book of Ruth, which is the idea that it was important during these Old Testament times for the carrying on of the, of the family line, the family name. And so the idea that a, a brother or a near relative would marry the wife of the deceased and then have offspring who would bear the name of the deceased was not at all unusual. In fact, it's described in Scripture, and the Sadducees are trying to take that and use this practice that's accepted and say, so what do you do with that, you believer in the resurrection? Jesus, it says, verse 29, Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Sadducees' questions rooted in the importance of, of Offspring, And in Jewish thinking, that is vitally important. The idea that it's necessary for the woman to marry a brother to carry on the family name. And that's an important theme in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, you are handling scripture wrong and you misunderstand the power of God. 
on the handling of scripture wrong, what he's essentially saying is you, you are taking something that you think is a legitimate question and you're, you're asking, well, if there's a resurrection, how does this work? Whose wife will she be? But you're taking a, a practice that we see in scripture and resurrection that we see in scripture and you're trying to make the one nullify the other and you can't do that. Both are clearly taught. So you, you must not know scripture because if you knew scripture and he'll go on in here and, and go back to Exodus chapter three and say, even there when God speaks to Moses, he speaks to being the God of the living and he refers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So resurrection is there and so too is this practice. So you don't know the scriptures. More than that, he says, you don't, you don't understand the power of God. You're caught up in what's going to happen in terms of offspring. And I'm here to tell you that you're missing the fact that God does something even greater. He raises the dead and you have discounted his power. But in the process of rebuking them, Jesus says that line that you may remember the first time that you read that in Matthew 22. And you, you paused at that line because it's one of these hard sayings of Jesus. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. This is one of the many ways in which life in heaven will be different from what we know here on earth. Marriage does not transcend into eternity. That doesn't mean that the knowledge of our marriage, the memory of our marriage, the awareness of our marriage will be forgotten in heaven. There's no reason to assume that because the text is not saying that, but it is saying that our state of being will not be as married, as believers. We are all moving toward the fullness of our union, our perfect union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as, as you consider what he's saying here, I, I think there's two reasons why in heaven there is no marriage. God may have many more reasons, but I'll give you two anyway this morning. First of all, when we are in heaven, our love for others will be perfect. Scripture commands you and I love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So I am commanded to love you as I love myself. And I'll let you in on a little secret. And that is that I love my wife, Robin, just a little bit more than all of you guys. I, I love you. I really do. But I love my wife in a really unique way. And, and I, I love my kids, my family, and I do love my neighbors. But we understand that because we understand that sort of passion, devotion, emotion that is in that. And so we understand what that is. That those distinctions will vanish at the resurrection. We will be like Christ. And so we will love others like Christ. And we will love one another perfectly. But then there's also this. When we are with Christ, we will fully know the most perfect of all relationships. We will be joined to our Savior and the fulfillment of our union with him will happen at the resurrection. And we will know love in a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend on the best days of marriage on this earth when we know Christ in that way. One writer puts it this way, no earthly or human relationship we can or ever will experience will stand even as a momentary flicker of a candle in comparison to experiencing the blazing sun of our heavenly existence before the presence of our almighty God. The depth, the intimacy of human relationships, including marriage and family relationships are good, but they are temporary. The blessings of those relationships are good, but they are part of our fleeting life here on earth. I performed a wedding ceremony yesterday, and we came to the end of the vows, and you know the line, until 
death do us part. It is an acknowledgement of this very truth that at the resurrection, we will stand before the judge of all the earth as single people, as individuals responsible for our own lives before him. Take a look at Matthew chapter 12. Here's another hard saying. I'll pull these together in a moment just in terms of singleness, but I think you see some of where I'm going with that first one. But Matthew 12, this is a scenario that's repeated in several of the Gospels. It is Jesus being met by his mother and his brothers who are concerned for his welfare. And so Matthew 12, verse 46 While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. case the words of Jesus about There not being marriage and the resurrection aren't challenging enough. Now he steps really closely into family relationships. The parallel account of this is in Mark chapter 3, and it tells us that the earthly family has become concerned. They think Jesus is losing his mind, that the kinds of crowds that are surrounding him are troubling, and so they have come to sort of retrieve him. And so there's almost an element of confrontation here. But Jesus isn't trying to slight Mary or his brothers when he says this. He is simply being very clear about the fact that there are life priorities for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, and that priority for us is him. It is our discipleship to him. Our our physical, relational bonds are, are very important, and they are taught about all over Scripture, about parenting and being children and marriage. All of those things are taught about in Scripture. But the relationship with Christ is preeminent. Finding our joy and our peace and our satisfaction in Christ is most important. Spouses and parents and children and the closest of friends will all fail you at some time or another. You've experienced that. You've been the failure probably at some time or another too to that other person. You you get that. But we are loved by Christ perfectly. We are held by Christ eternally if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But it's worth noting here that this is Jesus also applying this to himself. This is Jesus saying, who are my mother and and brothers? Is it not those who are my disciples who follow me? Here is Jesus speaking to us, our Savior, walking and serving as a single man on the earth. Sam Albury has written an excellent book on singleness, and I would commend it to you. It's mentioned in your notes, but he writes this about Jesus. He is the most complete and fully human person who ever lived, so his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. Jesus speaks to us about marriage and about intimacy and speaks to us about singleness as the perfect Savior who came and who lived his life for the will of his Father, just as we are called to do. He obeyed his Father's will, and he never experienced marriage or sexual intimacy. And he speaks to us from that. Now, turn to Luke 18. One more of these sayings of Jesus. Luke 18. One more that might ring as radical to you, or at least cause you to 
pause and think. He has confronted a rich man, and he has just warned this rich man that, that riches can be, can impede somebody's following of him because there's that temptation to rely on one's wealth instead of relying fully on Christ. And so he has rebuked this rich man, and to his rebuke, then Peter steps in, and Luke 18, verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter's comment, we tend to pick on Peter, sort of impetuous. Here's Peter sort of bragging. I think it's possible that Peter at this point is looking for a little bit of reassurance because, again, if you get the scenario, the guy who has come to Jesus has come with what the disciples presume is a really good question. Good teacher, how do I, how do I inherit eternal life? It's the right question. He's, he's thinking correctly as he approaches Jesus. And, and, and in the disciples' mind, he's, he's rich, which to them was you know, somehow a sign of blessing. God must have shown him favor. And when Jesus is done with this guy and warns him about his riches, this guy, it says, goes away sad. And so if Peter's watching this, and this guy who they think is coming on the right basis with the right question and the right blessing, if he's sent away sad, it's possible that Peter's sort of thinking at this point, hmm, are we doing this right? Have we, we've given up so much. Are, are we on track? And Jesus answers, yes. You may have left many things behind, but nothing you've left will compare with the blessing that you receive in following me. You, all of that, none of it rivals what you receive in joy and peace in this life and then in the life to come. There is so much blessing. And you'll notice that Jesus even includes marriage in verse 29. Those who have left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is not a call for Christians to sort of arbitrarily renounce family ties. We know that because we know from the rest of Scripture that what husbands and wives and parents are called to. So it's not that. But it is a clear statement of priority. Whenever there is a choice on the matter, whenever there seems to be a division, follow Christ. Christ must win. You must obey Christ. When there is that crossroads between family as near and dear and Christ, you must obey him. Again, let me read the words of a writer who puts it this way. Jesus' recurring message appears to be that the traditional commitments of marriage, home, and family never provide legitimate grounds for not responding to the call of discipleship. The ultimate bond of the new family through the gospel is even stronger than that of one's physical earthly family. Married or single, your chief relationship is with Jesus. He is the bread of life. That means he is the one who sustains us that we, we desperately need. We can do life without a lot of things and even a lot of people. That's not to discount the fact that we are put in community and we need to be together. But, but we all experience loss. We've all lost loved ones who are, are near and dear to us. But we cannot do life apart from Christ. We're not going to do it well apart from the, the one who is the living water, the one who is the, 
the, the, who abides with us, who cares for us, who loves us perfectly. We need him. The whole picture of the vine and the branches is you must be attached to him. That relationship must be priority. And I started here this morning just purposefully looking at these things that Jesus says because, because I think the temptation can easily be after the last couple of weeks when we've talked about sex, God's design, his establishment of marriage and the covenant and sexual intimacy within marriage and the celebration of that in Song of Solomon and, and, and 1 Corinthians and the fact that that is good. I think it's possible to sometimes come away feeling as if singleness is, is somehow second best. That, that marriage, intentionally or not, we end up upholding marriage as this is, this is the ideal and singleness is just something less. Marriage has the intimacy and the romance and the companionship and singleness seems to be lacking. But I hope you've seen in the words of Jesus Christ himself the emphasis on the fact that every believer is an individual person whose most important, most sustaining relationship is the one that you have with Christ. That is our priority. That is what we have been called to. The Bible sees your, your growth as a believer in Jesus Christ, your blessing as a believer, as an individual who is part of a corporate community. So we all grow and serve and are transformed as individual believers, but we do so in the context of community. Certainly marriage can offer wonderful benefits. I mean, who knows your sin better than your spouse, right? Who can help you to identify the things that you do wrong? Who better to help you find and spot those things, right? Than your spouse. I say that facetiously, but we know it's true. But marriage does offer those benefits. A, a, a Christian husband who is endeavoring to follow Ephesians 5 and lead and love like Christ does his church, it's a blessing to his wife. A godly woman who is seeking to, to serve her family and honor her God, as the woman described in Proverbs 31, is a rich source of blessing to her husband. But we also know this, not every believing wife has a husband who trusts in Christ, or every believing husband has a wife who is joined to Christ. And even when both are believers, there's still plenty of sin to go around. And marriage is still filled with Challenges of two sinners living in really close proximity, trying to do life together. Marriage is not a guarantee of loving service and sweet companionship. It's what we are called to. It's what the Spirit wants to enable us to do. But it's not a lock on these things. There are still struggles along the way. And ultimately, what the words of Jesus tell us is that the marital relationship is not the primary one in the believer's life. It's the same thing that, that Stuart and I lead off with in most marital counseling or premarital counseling, which is you need to grow in Christ as individuals. You need to love Christ as, as a believer in Jesus Christ. If you grow in Christ and you're both growing in Christ, you will ultimately grow together. That, that, that will come as fruit of Christ's work. But your primary relationship for married believers as it is for single believers is your relationship with him. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7 and we'll... Pretty well finish in here with just a few of the verses. We started this last week. We looked at verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. It's all part of this ongoing rebuke and instruction concerning sexual sin in Corinth. 
This is where the prevailing attitude amongst the men who are professing to be believers is that when it comes to my wife, um, I am going to abstain except for the purpose of procreation. When it comes to women other than my wife, in particular temple prostitutes, I can do what I want because that's just my body and that's just the flesh and, and somehow that's regarded, rationalized as okay. In scripture we've already read where it rebukes that and says no. This is sexual intimacy is to be a regular, enjoyable, pleasurable part of marriage between a husband and a wife. At the end of that, verse 6, Paul writes, now is a concession, not a command, I say this. There's some question about, is he saying that about what's to come or what's just been said? And I think it goes back to what's just been said. In, in, in verse 6, Paul is likely referring to verses 1 through 5. And what he means is, my own desire, speaking to you as Paul here, is that you would not be so focused on sex and intimacy and all of the, the things that come with marriage and all of the distractions that come, because all of these things distract you from Christ. But I also understand God's design. I've just given it to you in these earlier verses, and you should obey it. So it is far better that you marry and enjoy your spouse and give yourself to your spouse in marriage than that you be tempted by sexual sin and that you fall down on that path. Again, remembering what we've said previously as believers, there is sex within marriage between a husband and a wife, or there is celibacy. And Paul is in the, the latter state, and he's saying, if, if I had to give you my preference as a single guy, I think it's a good place to be. I think it is an undistracted place, a place or at least less distractions in terms of service for Christians, but he also is conceding, he says in verse 6, that most of you should probably be married. And then he says this, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's the, here's the simple boiling down of Paul's message. Our preference and, and, and this, this part is even more than preference, is you be devoted to Christ. Serve Christ. Give your, give your life as much devotion to Christ as possible. And, and now preference is I'd prefer you not be distracted by marriage and all the cares that go with that. But when it comes to the command part of this, it is you are free. You are free to be single and you are free to be married. This, this is a a move, if you will, in the New Testament from the Old Testament where a lot of the call for Israel is for offspring, is for marriage. There's that emphasis here. We get it very clearly at this point that you are free now to marry or to remain single. In fact, he puts it in the language of a gift. He says in verse 7, each has his own gift from God. You read 1 Corinthians and you come across the, the word gift on several occasions, primarily talking about spiritual gifts. And every time we see that word gift, it generally has the same connotation, two things. One, this is a gracious thing from God. It is something that God is giving out of his own grace. And two, it is for the purpose of building up others. He's given you this gift not to hunker down and keep it for yourself, but to, to serve others. And so even here now, Paul is using this word gift and saying it is by God's gifting by God's grace, that I am enabled to be where I am. And for one, it's one, and for one, it's the other. For me, it is the grace of God, and I regard it as a gift that I am able to not be distracted by the desire for marriage. I'm not, I'm not thinking about that, and it's not consuming me, and, and I, 
I'm okay with that. I, I have a gift from God that allows me to not be there. And, and also, it would appear from what Paul's saying that God's grace has given him a measure of self-control in the area of, of sexual desire. Not all have that same gifting. For others, that, that provision from God is a godly spouse that you are married to. But again, the ultimate point is that singleness is not to be looked down upon. On the contrary, what Paul is saying is there's great benefit in this. See this, this season that you are in, this lot in life right now, not as something to be bemoaned or dreary, but as something where God has placed you for the purpose of pouring your life into the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says as much down in verse 32, 1 Corinthians 7, Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is following what he has previously said in, in verse 28, that those who marry will have worldly troubles, which is a translation of the idea of afflictions of the flesh. The movie plot may show the newlyweds going off into the sunset with the happily ever after over top. But the reality is, as scripture says, and as, as, as those of you who are married know by experience, is there are troubles that are unique to marriage. There is, again, the multiplication of sin because two sinners are living close together. There's the meshing of goals and dreams. There's the clash of their own selfish wants and the biblical call to, to serve sacrificially and to suffer for. And then there's the... the, the the new family unit that comes in, there's in-laws, there's children or the potential for children, and there's all the heartbreak that can come with being able to have children or not being able to have children or having children and having something awful happen with children. And all of these things are, are part of what Paul has in mind here when he speaks of troubles that are inherent to marriage. There are hardships that happen. There are hardships that are unique to, to singleness, not the least of which is the struggle to build deep friendships that, that satisfy that longing for companionship that God spoke about when he said it is not good for the man to be alone. But there are unique troubles for both. And in the end, 1 Corinthians 7 is saying, I'm calling you to a devotion, to as undivided a devotion to Christ, as unencumbered a devotion to Christ as possible. And the argument here is that it may well be simpler and less complicated for the single person. And so instead of being in that season and being swamped with discontent, pray for God to give you that, that sense that this is an opportunity right now to give more devotion to Him, to focus on Him, Try to, to, to seek more time than what God has given you. There, there's, there are trials on all sides. There is not a suggestion here that single life is, is carefree. There are still responsibilities and health matters and job issues and friendships and all that goes with that. Still multiple opportunities for anxiety. But Scripture is saying that for marriage, there are even more. <laughs> Those get multiplied. So take this season and use it for his glory. It's important to note here, Paul in verse 35 is really clear that what he's urging is not to be a binding command from God. 
He's, he's, say, he's not saying singleness is now required. He says, no, I'm not trying to do that. This is, this is not a restraint. Nor is this saying that if you are single, that therefore you should settle in and this is your lot for the rest of your life, that this is what you have been gifted with and therefore there is nothing, no opportunity for marriage if that's what you desire, that sorry, but this is what it is. He's saying this is not a restraint. But what singles, he says, are called to is good order, promoting good order and undivided attention. That promoting a good order, the Greek is the idea of good and proper appearance. It is to live a life that says Jesus is Lord of my life. It is to live a life where by appearance, people see that I am joined to my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I find my contentment and peace in him. Of course, undivided devotion we've talked about. There is no competition for your allegiance from a spouse or children, and that's what he's saying. Use that. So what does this all mean? Let me just give you six short, sort of paragraph-long summary statements by way of application. Number one, don't adopt the world's mindset. Satan and the world are, are pitching a lie when they, when they do their best to mock celibacy. There's nothing that takes a greater beating in the cultural square than the idea of celibacy. Um, the world says to be a single adult who is not sexually active means there must be something wrong with you. You must be some kind of fool to be that, and the pressure to conform has never been greater. The sad thing about this is, is the culture is putting a, a weight, a load on sex and sexual intimacy that neither of those things can ever possibly bear, and saying that this, this somehow will bring you what you, you need, and that is not True. There are consequences when we make these things into idols, when we love them more than God. Don't follow the world's mindset. We're seeing, and we've talked about this, the movement of people marrying later and older. And for some, that's because I want to be devoted to God and I'm waiting for God to bring the right person. For others, it's just a worldly desire that wants to be autonomous. And, and, and I want to do what I want to do. Guard your heart on these things. What am, I, what am I doing with these seasons? Because the world is trying to sell you a bill of goods that will never hold up. Secondly, you are complete. This is the words of Jesus when he's stressing that, that marriage is good and honorable, but, but no one is complete by it. It doesn't make all the difference. In fact, Colossians 2.10 says, in Christ we have been made complete. Marriage does not provide the missing piece to finally grow you up in Christ. It can help, and God will use it. If he calls you to marriage, he will use that. But as a single person, you are complete. You have the Spirit of God you have the word of God, you have the community of God, and those are the things that he has brought into your life to cause you to grow and to love him and to serve him. Draw on those resources and rely on them. Number three, you are gifted to serve Christ in his body. Again, we don't need marriage to fulfill this. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says, every individual believer is equipped by God's spirit to serve the body, to glorify God and to edify the saints. There's no marriage requirement. And in fact, as, as we've already seen in chapter 7, there may even be advantage to singleness. Number four, just as married couples need to work really hard at building companionship, Christ-honoring companionship, singles must work hard 
at building close friendships with family in Christ, Christ-honoring friendships that help bridge that need for companionship. We are designed for intimacy. It is the culture that folds companionship intimacy into sex and says that the only way you actually experience intimacy is if it's some kind of sexual act. And the reality is that companionship is something that God has provided that comes from, from sharing and listening and counseling and leaning on and praying for and being together. Let me just say, this one, all of these, as marrieds, we need to be getting, but marrieds, this is for you and I. We need to hear this and understand in our, our ministry to singles and in, in, in seeing that need for companionship. There's a sense in which, and, and Sam Albury deals with this well, there, there's a sense in which we can feel complete. I've got my companion and, and, and I'm good. Well, we need to be a people who are, are being friends, who are serving and ministering and loving others and extending that kind of caring friendship, that loving brother-sister friendship. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's all very again. You can tell what book I'm still encouraging you to read who, who points out that there's a contrast in this verse between friend and companion and friend and family. Companion, we've all got them. We've got lots of folks that you went to school with, work with, neighbors, your 235 Facebook friends, you know, man has many companions, right? He says that's one thing. And then the brother he speaks about, a friend sticks closer than a brother. Brother's good, and, and, and they may stick closely, but, but this goes back to the old adage of you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives. Sometimes relatives, you're, they're just sticking there because of obligation, because they have to be. He's saying the, the beauty is a friend who is there by choice. The friend who is sticking and abiding with me and who is close to me and walking with me through things and listening to me and giving me wise counsel. That's what he's calling and he's urging you and I to work hard at this. And I would say it's particular to those of you who are single, you, you have got to work hard to not only receive that kind of friendship, but to be that kind of friend allow for that kind of transparency and that sort of sharing and listening and living life together. Number five, if you're single and you're struggling with temptation or lack of contentment, seek help. Ask a friend for help. Pray. Talk to God. Continue to, to do the, the spiritual disciplines that you do to grow in Christ. Because for starters, you are not alone. If you are struggling with discontentment, as a single, if you are struggling with temptation, you are not alone. Because there are plenty of marrieds who are struggling with discontentment and temptation. Dealing with the temptation even that, that, of, of sexual sin of some kind. The call is the same, that we are sinners. And therefore, there is no gain in trying to battle temptation or discouragement or discontentment alone. Ask. I need help. I need you to pray for me. I need to talk to you. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Don't give up on being in God's word. Pray and ask God for, for that friend, that companion. And if it's your desire to be married for that, that godly wife, that godly husband that God would give you. Lastly, number six, keep reminding yourself that your ultimate contentment is found in the very same place as it is for the married person, and that is in Christ. 
Only in Jesus do we have perfect joy and peace. As a believer, married or single, you must be striving to grow in the knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ, of his kindness and his grace and his love. No friend, no family member can replace what he gives. No spouse will ever be able to bear the weight of the needs of your heart as Christ does. And that weight shouldn't be put on some other person that, that ultimately can only be met in Christ. Let me read one last quote from Alberry again. The key to contentment as a single person is not trying to make singleness into something that will satisfy us. It is to find contentment in Christ as a single person. The key to contentment as a married person is not trying to build a marriage that can make us content. It is to find contentment in Christ as a married person. This is liberating. It means that my, content, my contentment is not contingent on my marital status or on the number and depth of my friendships. The world on an hour-by-hour hour basis is feeding us discontentment. The world desires in everything you do to tell you this is not enough, that you need something more, that whether it's sex or riches or whatever it might be, that you should be discontent. It is the same thing Satan told Eve in the garden when he claimed God is holding something good back from you. You don't have it, and therefore you are going to be discontent until you eat of this fruit. That's why even marriage can be turned into a sinful idol when we crave and we allow this discontentment to take over. Christ is our contentment. He is our joy. He is the one whom Peter, when he finished up his letter, said, take care that you not be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Christ is your hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this, these truths, these things that you taught as you spoke to those who followed you, these things that Paul then expounded on, remind us and convict us of how much we, we look for something that is tangible, touchable, near in proximity. How often we have tried to find our greatest sense of contentment in a career or a person, in some form of pleasure, some activity. And Lord, we know they have, they have come up wanting every time. And so we come before you to confess that as a broken people, we have, we have sought so often in wrong places, wrong things, and discounted the, the sweetness of relationship that you bring, that you provide. Lord, let me just pray that if there's anyone listening online or here this morning who is, who is not trusting in you alone for their salvation, Lord, I, I pray that they would not come away with the idea that somehow there's just some magical fix to their discontentment, that, that you would convict them that their only hope is in acknowledging their sin and believing that you came and you died on the cross and then rose again to defeat sin and death, and that by trusting in you alone, there is forgiveness and life and peace. 
Father, I pray for our single brothers and sisters that are part of life here at Grace Bible Church. We thank you for them. We thank you for their gifts. Thank you for the skills and talents and personalities and in all that you accomplish and do in the life of our church through these brothers and sisters. We pray that you would encourage them today. Encourage them to be content in you, to draw near to you, to when they are struggling and, and fighting discontentment, to cry out for help, not only to you in prayer, but, but to their brothers and sisters, that we might be good friends. Father, for the we who are married here, pray that you'd give us a renewed vision for being caring brothers and sisters, being those who would show great hospitality and be eager to be in friendships where there is deep celebration of who you are and what you've done, but also sober awareness of who we are and the help that we need. Help us to be those kinds of friends who stick close together. We pray for your grace to do this well and apply these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.